any questions about things that we talked about? Um, we are using the worksheet um, that has at the top the Bible, it's inspiration and use, um, or the reading guide, rather. And last time we talked about the, um, the term Bible, and we talked about uh, the canon a little bit, and what is the canon. Um, we talked about some of the books that are mentioned in the Old Testament and, uh, but, or, and are not included as part of the Old Testament canon. We also talked about the Apocrypha and um, then some of the so-called New Testament Apocrypha. Um, and if you read any of those, you know, <laughs> you probably just wait for another Gospel of Judas or Gospel of Thomas coming this year around Holy, around Holy Week. Um, but the two that would be actually worthwhile to spend a little bit of time if you're, if you're interested would be the first one called The Shepherd of Clement or The Shepherd uh, by Clement. Um, and then there was a different one that I was thinking about earlier today, which is, you know, maybe helpful as well, but I'm not remembering the name of it. <laughs> but the bottom line is that there's, there's nothing hidden about books that are not included in, in scripture, um, that they are, but they are not part of the canon because they were not inspired. And that the church has known about these things for a long time. And it's not like, oh, no, there's this vast conspiracy that Tom Hanks has to make a movie about um, so that we can all figure out what's the, the secret code in all of Leonardo da Vinci's paintings. Um, and then the, the other handout, the one in with color with the gigantic yellow dot on the left, um, you can see you know, where, where it's from. And what it is, is... If you start at like 12 o'clock on the right-hand side where you have Plato, um, it gives you both the distance in time from when the, man, the person lived. And then the orange or the yellow dot gives a relative number of manuscripts. Um, and then there's a number outside of that. So you see Plato, um, that the oldest manuscript we have of Plato is from roughly 1400 years after the fact. And there are seven of them in total. Um, so Plato, you know, like the, the Republic, the Apology, it's like if second year Greek, you're going to read Plato. Um, and you work your way around Herodotus, the father of history. Um, his comes 1300 years after he lived. And there are eight. Uh, Thucydides and his account of the Peloponnesian War, another eight manuscripts. Aristophanes wrote a number of plays that were comedies. Um, there are 10 of them. Tacitus, another historian, um, he's a Roman, and we have 20 copies or 20 of his manuscripts in various forms um, or various condition, if you will, and roughly a thousand years afterward. Sophocles, um, another philosopher, I think. Um, we actually have a, a lot of his writing, 193 manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts. Homer, um, you can tell that that Homer was very influential on the Greek language. That's at like three o'clock as you're working your way around. Um, we have 643 manuscripts or manuscript fragments from Homer. Um, and as early as 500 years after he lived. <laughs> working your way around Aristotle, uh, 49 manuscripts. Caesar, like Julius Caesar, and um, Caesar's Gallic Wars. So his account of his wars in France are again like second or third year Latin is um, is foundational there. Um, you work your way around, and all these people 
from like 12 o'clock down to six o'clock, um, if they were held to a 10th of the standard that the Bible is from a manuscript perspective, then the classics departments in no universe in every university would just cease to exist. Um, because there on the left hand is the number of old uh, the number of new testament manuscripts um, approximately 27 24,000 um, manuscripts or manuscript fragments dating back to as soon as 40 years after after the first one was written um, so the gospel of john um, the earliest fragment we have from from the gospel of john is from 126 um, a.d obviously um, and that is probably about 40 years after the Apostle John put pen to parchment or to, uh, to paper or papyrus, probably parchment. Um, and so from a human perspective, <coughs> this, is, this is at least helpful for understanding the outsized influence of the Bible on um, ancient literature, as well as an, what we would call an external proof of the, uh, the, the faithfulness or the truth of the Bible, um, as well as an external proof for the, uh, the manuscript, uh, the confidence we have in the manuscript of the Bible. So any questions on that? I think it's helpful. Um, credit to Mark Berry in 2010. And you can use that for your own personal use. <laughs> Um, other than that, any questions from last time? We talked about the Bible, talked about the canon, um, and the, the term scripture. Um, canon meaning like rule, and talking about the, the body of books that make up the Bible. Yeah, I should have stapled these or had them in order or something. I thought they'd have more page numbers to it. Um, then we, I think we, we left off talking about the variata and textual criticism. Um, so the variata, um, talking about what, well, I guess from your own memory banks or from what you read, what are the, the variata? Yeah, excellent. So um, yeah, the variata um, are, are differences between the, the text of the manuscript of different manuscripts, um, you know, such as comparing one to the other, and um, and trying to trying to figure out or discern um, which is the more reliable manuscript and uh, which is possibly the original uh, original text from what we have. Um, and we did talk a little bit about the different types of the variations. Um, some of them being like a variation of ear. So if you've got somebody, at, you know, this would happen more often in the monastery, um, where you have somebody kind of dictating, and then a whole room of, you know, 12 to 15 um, men transcribing what you're dictating. Um, there are some words that might sound the same, based on your pronunciation. You know, like in our in our uh, schooling system, we say Greek with a German accent, <laughs> which is kind of strange. Um, that that in 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 German, when you put the e and the u together, it makes an oi sound, like um, and that's kind of the way that we pronounce our Greek as well. Um, where the rest of the world would say paiduo, uh, we in our school say paidoyo, <laughs> um, and so there might be there might be some of those things like that where where the different vowel sounds might lead you to write a different word. 
Um, I think that was, that was the biggest thing. And, and also the confidence that there's no actual variation in, um, in the scriptural text or in the, the, anything that affects doctrine. Um, and so it's like, do you say Jesus, the Christ or Christ, Jesus, the Lord, or, um, you know, four different ways of saying that, um, anything else? So any questions on the variata, then our term textual criticism. Um, and this is, this is probably where we pick up the, the new, the new segment today, uh, talking about textual criticism. Um, and what we're talking about specifically here is, is comparing the texts, comparing the manuscripts that we have to try to determine which is the, which is the older or which is the original text, um, as opposed to which may have been a later mistake that was later added in. Um, any, anything that jumped out on you from the discussion of textual criticism, as far as either questionable or that you never thought about, or that was, that was comforting for you? I think part of it is um, that you've got, we've got both a very wide selection of, um, of Greek manuscripts, as well as early translations. And so between, between all the manuscript evidence that we have, it's fairly straightforward to say, well, he, this, this particular you know, manuscript writing was both early and widespread, or this particular error is something that only crops up in Alexandria um, and the, the manuscripts from Egypt or something like that. Um, as far as textual criticism, where it shows up in your Bible, um, you know, an example might be Mark chapter seven. Um, and there in the footnotes of Mark chapter seven, um, where Jesus is talking about, um, you know, washing and ceremonial washing. And, um, and then the footnote, you know, maybe it says cups, pitchers, and kettles, that they would wash their cups, pitchers, and kettles. And then down in the footnote, it might say, or pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's very, that's kind of helpful to give us some insight. Um, as far as, you know, which one was original, it's almost a coin flip, but there's, it's, it's a lot simpler to, to say, you're going to accidentally say cups, pitchers, and kettles when somebody else was saying pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. But where that one comes up most often is in the discussion of baptism and how do you apply water to someone um, as, as further proof that the word, that the verb baptizo just means to put water on something. Like if you spill um, your grape juice on the floor at home, you're going to baptizo that section of the floor. If you spill it on your couch, you're going to baptizo that section of the couch. You're not going to drag it down to the river and baptizo it by immersion. <laughs> um, and the fact that that variation exists is, is helpful to, to demonstrate that the people who spoke and wrote Greek at the time knew that the word baptizo did not mean to fully immerse underwater. That doesn't really come up in Lutheran circles, but the minute you step outside of Lutheran circles, like, you know, this last summer, we were at a friend's house and they were hosting church that day and they had a baptism that a baptism that day. And, and here's this guy spouting completely inaccurate things about baptism as well as Greek. But I, I guess I could have been rude and spoken up, but I didn't. Um, and what he said was bapti baptizo, you know, the Greek word here means to immerse. 
I mean, from the, the text of the Bible itself, we can see that that variant shows us that they understood it. It isn't just to immerse, because if you immerse your, your couch from home, you're going to ruin the thing. Um, other variants, um, the other major textual criticism questions would be in, um, in the Gospel of John, in like John chapter 9, when you've got that part about the woman who would be, who was found in adultery, and, and they, they brought in the woman before Jesus, apparently they let the guy go, um, but then they asked Jesus, what should we do? That section is usually set off as, um, you know, it's got er very early manuscript evidence, but it probably doesn't belong in the Gospel of John. It probably belongs maybe in the Gospel of Luke or in, or in something else that we don't know exactly where it fits. Um, and then the last like major textual qu question would be the very ending of the Gospel of Mark. Um, and that, does the Gospel of Mark end with Christ's command at the ascension, or does it go on to say a little bit more after that? Um, and, and all of those are, you know, the first one from Mark chapter 7, it's down in the footnote, um, in John 9, and at the end of the Gospel of Mark, it makes mention of it that, you know, the most, in the NIV 1984, it said, the most reliable and earliest manuscripts do not have this section here. Um, as far as, yeah, and, and, and in that respect, you're still depending on the NIV editors to determine what was the most reliable and the most ancient. And that's, um, I, wouldn't, I, I personally wouldn't always agree with them, but generally speaking, um, it's, they're, they're pretty good. And what you would also see from, from even those sections as like the most contested most contested sections that we've got is that there's really nothing here that we don't have in the rest of scripture. Um, and so for that reason, like the very ending of the gospel of Mark isn't included in the regular cycle of readings, um, just because it, you know, we, anything that Jesus has to say there, we could read from elsewhere without, um, you know, potentially stirring the pot and making people think and wonder about, you know, can I trust my Bible? Well, yes, you can. <laughs> it's just sometimes it's a question of where does this section really belong? That's an excellent question. Uh, the question is, why do we have the EHV Bible? And why is this important? Um, the, the short answer is that Zondervan Publishing House owns the copyright to all the NIV. And so the, the first NIV came out in 1978. And then after about six years in 1984, they came out with another, an update because after you test it out for a few years and you find out some quirks or maybe, you know, that didn't quite sound well, or there's a better way of saying this. It's like the 1978 NIV says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, or I shall lack nothing rather. Um, and the 1984 NIV says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. So I shall lack nothing versus I shall not be in want um, is, is basically some of the, you know, updates for 1984. Um, around 2008 or 2009, Zondervan said that they would be publishing a new updated NIV in 2011 um, and that they would not allow any further printing of the 1984 version. Um, and so the question for our publishing house at the time is what are we going to use for our catechism materials and for the new hymnal that we would like to be publishing? Um, and they, and we talked to Zondervan and, uh, pastor Nass was the previous pastor here. And his, his dad did a lot of work with the committees that are 
Synod had at the time. And, um, and so we talked to Zondervan and they would let us keep printing like our people's Bible, which is, um, it's just a section of scripture followed by commentary. And so they said, we wouldn't have to update those, but if we want to produce something new, like we wanted a new catechism and updated hymnal, um, then we would need to either use the 2011 NIV or some other translation or come out with our own was kind of the third, the third option. Um, and so then our, the scholars among us um, met with the translation committee who translated the NIV, um, both the old one and the new one, to kind of figure out their translation philosophy. Um, and I use that term very loosely. Um, that generally speaking, we've, you've got a, a continuum between um, a good paraphrase versus a strictly very wooden um, literal kind of a translation. Um, so if I said, I'm going, I'm going to the grocery store to get milk and eggs, um, a paraphrase might say, you know, Pastor Hagen's going to the store. Very literal. Um, Pastor Hagen will be driving to the store and purchasing milk and eggs in order to bring them home. Um, and, and that generally speaking, we like to have something in the middle. Um, that reads at about a sixth, sixth grade reading level, however you define that. <laughs> there are people who like get doctorates in this stuff. Um, and so, you know, the, the reason that they pursued the EHV was the thinking um, that we've got enough scholars to kind of oversee the project, as well as enough pastors who um, are still sharp on their language, that we can put together, you know, 100 to 200 of these pastors and have them translate sections and, uh, and put it together into a Bible. And including, you know, Professor Brug already had all of the Psalms translated. Professor Kuski already translated the entire book of Romans. Um, and so, you know, the short answer, <laughs> if there is one, the short answer is that we needed something that we would be able to use in our publications going forward. And, um, and that it was preferable for us to have to hold the copyright to that as opposed to saying, we're gonna hitch our pony to the NIV. And for 2011, they tried to go gender neutral in all their terminology, uh, which to some extent is laudable because God wants all people to be saved, <laughs> not, just not just males. Um, but to another extent, it's, it's detrimental because it muddies the water, especially in Old Testament prophecy. Um, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that, that you care about him? And then AMV 2011 says, what are people that you care about them and the son and the sons and daughters or the children of people that you watch out for them? Well, if you just translate it, children of people, or, you know, the, what are people that you are mindful of them? It obscures the messianic prophecy that's supposed to be there. And so where we kind of ended up um, is that our translation philosophy, um, I guess, is we want to make it general where it can be general, but, or where it should be, you know, like God wants all people to be saved. Um, but that when we, that our default is to just let the words stand with whatever pronoun God chose to use there. Um, and so that, and, and then we've got this Bible now that, um, that we use for, you know, our publications. And that's, <laughs> yeah, that's about it. Um, as far as me, I mean, I, I had the NIV, I had 30 years on the NIV 1984, and you probably hear that on some Sundays where 
Well, Pastor Hagen just made that up. That was like NIV 1984 plus some of the words that we've got here on the page. So I, I have a little bit more sympathy for the changeover back in the 70s or 80s. <laughs> that was going on then. Yeah, please. Um, the short answer is that, that Zondervan sells books. And, um, and they knew that their choice on some of these translation questions would perhaps hamper sales if the NIV 1984 was still available for sale. Um, and so they said, well, if you want the NIV, the NIV is still the NIV. And if you want it, here it is, the 2011. Um, it was, from my understanding, it was just a publishing decision to say, we want to be able to, to sell the new translation because they were the ones who invested all the money in the translation. And you got to realize some of that to uh, remain afloat to the publishing house. Yeah, it was, it was, it was an update to the, the 1984. It wasn't an entirely fresh translation, um, but that some of the choices along the way were, you know, questions that, that were debatable. And with, I mean, with every Bible, you kind of learn what, what the quirks are and you, you teach from what you've got. Um, but it's, maybe it's a little bit easier to, to teach from this when I know the quirks already <laughs> because, or, or I know why they, they translated that because we, we all had basically the same professors. Um, yeah, that, uh, that's a really good question. I think, um, part of that is the next part that we're getting into about the doctor of inspiration. And for that is uh, at least a, you know, a, a basic understanding of how does this work that, you know, the word, as much as we love the King James or, you know, my beat up red NIV that still goes with me everywhere, um, or the, whatever version you prefer, um, that you can be confident that the words on the page are God's word because it's a faithful translation and a faithful translation could choose any of, you know, a dozen to two dozen different ways of translating something sometimes. Um, because, you know, just the way that words are used, I think in a, it's a, the, the joke, you know, what do you call somebody who speaks two language, two languages, that they're biling, bilingual, uh, three languages that they're trilingual, um, one language they're American. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that's, that's part of the frustration also, like we, we talked about translations when I was at St. Paul in Ottawa and, and there was, you know, a city that, that lives and breathes in two languages. And so they're like, I get it. Why are we spending so much time on this? You know, pastor, you just took up 40 minutes Bible class to talk about this. I'm like, yeah, I guess we had to, but no, now we can move on to something else. Um, but that question of, you know, how, I guess the basic question is how can I be sure that my Bible is the word of God and that I should be trusting this thing? Um, and the, if it's a, it, if it's a faithful translation, then any translation will do, um, like the new living translation is about as, as loose as I would get. Um, sometimes it captures words very well. And sometimes it's a little bit more of a paraphrase than you would prefer. But then you've got like, you know, the Christian standard Bible, the, um, the ESV, which reads very similar to the King James, um, the NIV, the NASB, um, there's just, there's a good, you know, probably eight or 10 different translations. Um, but 
all of them, if they, if they're uh, an actual translation, I'd stay away from a paraphrase. Um, but if they're an actual translation, then you can say, yeah, this is the word of God. And, um, and that's where maybe a familiarity with your own Bible, not just like, you know, I, I open it up and the Bible knows how to get to Matthew chapter five. Um, but a familiarity that says, I know what Matthew five is talking about. So let's look at it in, in this Bible or whatever Bible you prefer. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's a question of teaching, you know, what is textual criticism as we have it, as well as a question of biblical familiarity to say that, um, my familiarity, familiarity with my particular personal Bible doesn't matter as much as my understanding of where the Bible fits and where sections of the Bible fit in, in the question and discussion of doctrine. Um, and then after that, you know, <laughs> it would be great to have a Greek class here after, you know, you know, once a week. And if we started in September by, um, well, for sure by Easter, probably by Easter, we could, we could be reading, um, some, some longer sentences in, in Greek together, um, that, that Greek isn't just the, the purview of, of the pastors, um, but rather, you know, this is a language that, that is accessible, even if it is more complex than most languages that other people tend to study. It's a lot simpler than Mandarin, apparently. I, 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 <laughs> I only had one class of Mandarin, and I said, I've got enough other stuff to worry about right now. Uh, so on our screen there, we've got um, the five major translation centers um, of the early church, and these correspond to the five um, bishops or the five major centers of Christianity in the early church. Excuse me. Um, Rome, Constantinople, Antioch in Syria, uh, Jerusalem and Alexandria. And the other part of where this plays in is if you're looking at the screen, four of the five are in the, in the east. Um, so in 1054, there's a major split between the west and the east. And so the West only has one of those major areas, um, one person kind of in charge. And then the East has four. And, um, and it's, you know, roughly 150 years after that split between the West and the East, where the guy at around 1200 AD. Um, so that, that comes into play a little bit later. But as for right now, just talking about these places as places where there was a large quantity of manuscripts stored, um, as well as translations made at those places. Um, Alexandria, you know, you think of one of the seven wonders of the world in the library at Alexandria as one example. Um, talking about textual criticism, what we, what we mentioned here, um, that, again, we're not talking about putting doctrines into dispute. Um, and a modern translation, um, no modern translations are different because of differing opinions that generally speaking, there's, there's an accepted set of manuscripts and there's very little quarreling and quibbling about what the, what the text of the scriptures actually should be and what it is that we're translating from. And the, the bottom line then for the church is that churches aren't, aren't thrown into division and confusion on the basis of what does the text actually say. Um, there might be some, some further discussion on how do you translate it and then how do you apply it, 
Um, but that's, I mean, that's the, that's the fun part, I guess. <laughs> and, um, and some of that discussion of how do you apply it is, is something that, you know, why we, why we still need um, people to be, you know, knowledgeable in the original languages. Verbal inspiration, unless there's any other questions on textual criticism and the variance or the canon. Uh, the doctrine of verbal inspiration, um, such as if you have a Bible, I think we'll, we'll look in um, 1 Peter. It's either 1 Peter or 2 Peter. Oh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Yeah, to me, the only downside about, um, about the EHV right now is that they've only really got one version in print. So they don't have like the large, ver you know, large print and, and wide margin. And <laughs> like, this is the one that you get. Uh, Second Peter chapter one, uh, beginning in verse 16. Um, so if you're following along in this Brown Bible here at church, it's page 1776. <laughs> um, verse 16 reads like this. To be sure, we were not following cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the powerful appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from within the majestic glory, saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We heard this voice when it came out of heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the completely reliable prophetic word. You do well to pay attention to it, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Since we know this above all else, no prophecy of scripture came about for came by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is um, what we would call a sedes. Uh, there's our our foreign language word for tonight, sedes, S-E-D-E-S. -E um, it's a Latin word that means seat. Um, so a sedes doctrinae, so a seat of doctrine. Um, doctrinae is just like doctrine, except you tuck in an A right before that last E. Um, so when we say that's a sedes doctrinae or a seat of doctrine, what we are saying is that this is one of the primary places we look um, as, as proof for for the particular doctrine that we are talking about. Um, no sedes doctrina is ever alone. You know, there are usually multiple from multiple places. Um, but what we have here in verse, uh, verse 21, men spoke from God as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so that, that doctrine of verbal inspiration, that God breathed into the author the exact Bible words he wanted them to write. Got a little bit more to say about that, but this is the bottom of um, bottom of your reading page. Um, what do you find most amazing about the doctrine of inspiration, or perhaps what was most surprising from what you read? And and I've heard that also that um, that idea that the eye of the needle was like the nickname for this this short little gate where the camel had to be unloaded in order to get through. 
Um, but I think even, even from the context of where Jesus says that, when the disciples are like, oh, who can be saved? <laughs> um, the, the, the point is that, you know, the camel can't go through, that the rich man can't be saved, and neither can I. <laughs> like, I'm not going to dive through there. I'm, you know, nobody can. Um, and that's where Jesus responds with, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And that the all things that are possible are grounded in the, the death and resurrection of his son. Definitely. Yeah. And verbal inspiration. Um, that the, the first thing we're talking about is that God gave the impulse to write. That, um, and you see this more often in the, the Old Testament prophets, the word of the Lord came to me. And that's, that's even unique among, among religions um, where, you know, maybe Joseph Smith or Muhammad has this, what he says is a terrifying vision, but he's never given really the command to write. Um, but that, especially the Old Testament prophets, we see it most clearly that God gave them the impulse to write. Um, and then secondly, that God uh, worked through their, their natural abilities and vocabulary to communicate exactly what he wanted to say. And it's not just that he gave them the meaning um, to, you know, like put this in your own words and then he gives them a paragraph, <laughs> you know, but God worked through their specific vocabulary to communicate even down to the, the, the letters and the words that he wanted them to say, um, but that he worked through their own vocabulary. And so, for instance, um, the gospel writer Luke uses very medical terminology, we would say, to describe some of the medical things that are going on. Um, and, you know, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, Luke leaves out that the woman with the issue of bleeding had suffered many years at the hands of many doctors, um, whereas, you know, Mark includes that. Um, and the gospel writer John uses a very, very simple terminology. Um, his, and after you, you read through the gospel of John, you kind of get a feel for both how he writes as well as the, the language that he uses. Um, and so we're also talking not only, um, the impulse to write and the word choice, um, and the vocabulary, vocabulary, but also even the style where the gospel of John, um, just kind of repeats the same basic themes until you get to the center of the book. If you kind of like picture going up a spiral staircase, and then John chapter 11 is the middle thematically. And then you follow the same basic themes all the way down to John chapter 20. And then John ch chapter 21 is kind of the epilogue at the end. Whereas um, Luke writes in a very, very strict, you know, Greek kind of way. I think I mentioned this maybe once um, that Luke starts out with a very convoluted sentence. Like the first four verses is all one sentence where the first noun is at the start of it and the first verb that he's using is at the very end of it it's it's like a maze to try and figure out um but when you do it's really cool and what he's doing is is using very demonstrating a, a very excellent grasp of greek style um, but then after the first four verses then he switches into a basic c-spot run <laughs> kind of greek is about the way the way that we put it um, and, and he's, that he's more concerned with relating, relaying the events, um, accurately, as opposed to, um, showing off that he knows all the flair of Greek style. So we've got the impulse, we've got the vocabulary, we've got the, you know, the way that they say these words. Um, and we also include that there, there is the possibility and it doesn't, doesn't discount inspiration that they would do their own investigating. 
um, such as Luke makes note of at the beginning of Luke, that, you know, Theo dear Theophilus, I so sat down to write all this I, and I investigated it, that he most likely talked with Mary, um, that we hear about in the, in the book of John, or in the book of Acts, rather, that Mary was probably living um, in that area for some time after the death of Christ, um, living under the care of the gospel writer, John, and, um, and also the half-brother of Jesus was, you know, living in the area at the same time, talking about James, and probably Jude as well. Um, and the fact that, that Luke talked to her or interviewed her doesn't in any way diminish the reality of verbal inspiration, um, but that God instead chose to, to use that and include um, that Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Um, or include a little bit about um, Jesus' mother and brothers showing up because they thought Jesus was crazy. <laughs> um, or, for instance, um, that it, it's possible, I guess, that, that Moses had some um, you know, previous journals or other writings that aren't in existence anymore. Um, that was Luther's opinion that, that he had a copy of like Abraham's journal or diary. Um, but he didn't, he didn't need those things. But if God chose to make sure that the truth had been retained um, about the creation of the world and even before, you know, before the flood, if God chose to have the truth retained in those things and, um, and then use those things as kind of the basis for the, the writing that, that Moses would give, that's completely allowable as well. Um, and, but I think where, where we really end up with talking about inspiration is that it's both the, the words on the page as well as the content or the meaning of those words, um, that we have specific promises to scripture applying to both. Um, you know, like that, the fantastic line from the King James, not the least jot or tittle, <laughs> if you remember that, that one always sticks in the, in the mind, um, or the NIV translation, not the, the least little letter will disappear from my word before the end of time. Um, and there Jesus is applying his promise specifically to the words on the page that the, the manuscript, you know, the, the letters that are written on, on those pages would exist um, through the end of time and even through the, uh, through the, the last, last judgment day, um, as, well as, <laughs> as well as the promise that that also applies specifically to the content of those words. Um, and a couple of those are in um, like John chapter 17, where Jesus is in the upper room with the, the, the apostles and he promised, promises to send the Holy Spirit to remind them of the things that he said to them. So, and that the Holy Spirit would remind them of everything that he had told them. Um, and so that promise also applies not only to the specific words on the page and the letters on the page, but also the content and what's being shared through that, through those words. Okay, yeah. I would agree that, that Luther was, was blessed. I mean, he suffered a great deal early in his life um, with dealing with the conscience and being forced to hold his nose to the, the words of God rather than his emotion or his reason. Um, and in that respect, you know, God used his academic acumen to, um, and, and honed it um, to, to be used for a good purpose. Um, but we've got, you know, 
the statement at the end of the book of Revelation at the, if anyone adds anything to this book, then the plagues of this book will be added to him. If anyone removes from this book, then his name will be removed from the book of life. Uh, we've got some statements like that, as well as, um, I guess that's the last part about verbal inspiration, is that the books are inspired from, from the moment that they were written. Um, and all the church did was recognize them as inspired. Um, I don't know if we talked about homologumina and antilegomena. <laughs> all right. So this is this is the last the last little bit on um, talking about the canon and um, and the the canon of scripture. That the books of the Bible were inspired from the moment that they were written, and all the church did was recognize them as inspired. Um, and we we couldn't add to books that were you know add books that were not inspired or remove books that were inspired, that the books God wanted us to have are the exact books that we have in our Bible. Um, all that being said, there were a, a category of, um, we're talking New Testament textual criticism now. There were some books in the New Testament that were um, spoken against, so to speak, um, which is the word anti-legumina. Um, it's spelled like it sounds. <laughs> A N T I L E G O M E N A. Anti and then Lego, like the thing is step on and then mina. <laughs> um, and the anti legomena um, are books that um, generally were not written by one of, you know, not known to have been written by one of the 12 apostles, uh, 11 and then 12 again, well, 13 maybe if you include Paul, um, or that were books that were thought to be very heavy on the law um, or books that, you know, there was a difference between one and the other. Um, so books that were not recognized to be written by an apostle, you've got like the book of Hebrews. We don't know exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, I could give you a couple of options. Um, for my money, I, I'd put all my money on Barnabas, um, aka Joseph. If you read in the book of Acts, like at the end, I think Acts, Acts chapter five, um, Joseph also called, called Barnabas brought in, you know, sold a piece of land and brought in the money and laid it at the, at the apostles feet. Right after that, we have Ananias and Sapphira. Um, but that Barnabas is, is the one that would be my guess if I had to guess. Um, other options for the book of Hebrews include Priscilla and Aquila, um, Apollos or Silas or Paul. Um, and, and nobody can really say one way or the other based on the, the evidence that we have. Um, the book of Hebrews, we, we can be fairly certain it was written before 70 AD because the writer makes mention of the ongoing sacrifices at the temple. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD, so it couldn't be written after that. Um, so it was probably written, written in the mid to late 60s. We don't know who. So it was spoken against in, in that regard. Um, because they didn't know who wrote it. And so there was a little bit more question like, we need to pay a little bit closer attention to this one and see, you know, and whether, you know, wait and see if it, if it stands the test of um, meeting up with the rest of scripture. Um, Book of James, written by the half-brother of Jesus. Um, there's so many Jameses, and I forget which is which. <laughs> Maybe I'll remember one of these times. Um, but when you read the book of James, it was kind of spoken against as, as having, you know, too much law and no real gospel content to it. Um, and you read the book of James and, you know, there's, there's a little bit right at the beginning that, you know, every good and perfect gift comes from, from above, from the father of the heavenly lights. 
that might sound like a, a really good thing, um, but it's not, you know, specifically gospel content. Um, but James, you know, it, it fits with James writing to um, a bunch of believers who should have known better after 20 years of being Christians. Um, and then other ones um, that were curious as to their origin or to their style would be first and second Peter, um, where first Peter was probably written by Peter dictating to a scribe, uh, which we hear about at the very end of first Peter chapter five. Um, and second Peter, um, I would say, you know, it makes sense that second Peter was written by Peter's own hand. And it's as, uh, as rocky as, as anything like, is this actually Greek or is he trying to make up his own new language here? Um, and so there was, there was some, some question as to where did, where did this manuscript come from? And is it the same author that we have from first Peter? Um, but I mean, comparing the two, you can see that the content between first Peter, second Peter, and, and actually Jude are basically the same content, um, overlaid one, one over the other. They're, they're basically identical in content. Um, so those were the anti-legumina, um, Jude and Revelation would be the last ones because there was some curiosity as to if their content really belonged on par with the rest of scripture. Um, but they were all recognized as inspired early on, just that the church had a little bit more difficult time figuring out where exactly this fits. And is this something that, that we should really include in with the, the text of the rest of our rest of our Bible. Um, the homologumina or homologumina rather are all the, all the books that are not the anti-legumina. So the homologumina um, are the books that were um, with a unified voice. The church is like, yeah, you know, apostle Paul wrote to the Romans. He wrote to the Corinthians. Obviously it's inspired. We know who it's from. We know what he's talking about. We have a setting in a place and this didn't just show up in the middle of nowhere. And, um, and then this letter was copied and spread around far and wide. Um, but I think with both of those, either the, the homologumina, which were the accepted books that were readily and early except early accepted at an early date and the anti-legumina, which had some questions early on, but were still accepted. Um, they were both recognized as, um, as inspired just that, <laughs> I don't know, they just had some questions as to what, where exactly did this come from, such as who's the author, what's the specific application of this, you know, like the book of James, um, what is the meaning of this for the church, you know, like the book of Revelation, if you're a first century Christian reading the book of Revelation, and you'd be like, all right, I, I kind of get what you're saying, but what does this mean for me? Um, it takes a little bit to unpack that. Um, so I guess that's the, the last part that <laughs> we kind of skip over, um, given that this is, I mean, it's not an introductory dogmatics text, but it's, but it's still, um, you know, kind of aimed at a high school level dogmatics text, the anti-legumina and the homologumina. So then next time we will get into fundamental and non-fundamental doctrines. And both, um, what do we mean by those terms, as well as how are those terms um, sometimes misused or misunderstood? So we will close with prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for, um, for the external proof 
that you continue to carry out the promises encased in your word. Grant that we have the same reverence for your word as the care and attention that you have shown to your word over the millennia in preserving it for us today. Grant that we treasure it both in, um, in the translations that you have provided for us, as well as the meaning for our daily lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.